Welcome to Wasted. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This podcast meets the people building solutions for climate change and learns how their innovations are shaping our future world. This series of Wasted so far has had a very British feel to it. And today we're going to change that. And I'm delighted to welcome a Canadian company onto the show. Recycle Smart, based in Vancouver in Canada, uses technology, waste audits and computer algorithms to make recycling more efficient. And so to find out what's happening in Canada and at Recycle Smart and how we use technology to better manage our waste, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Colin Bell, co-founder and chief operating officer at Recycle Smart. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here and excited to be on the other side of the podcast, Mike, because usually I'm hosting, but today I'm the guest. So take it easy on me. Excellent. You've set the, you, you've set the standards very high already. So I'm going to get straight in there. You know, I, in my introduction, there, I said we're you know, very British field to the podcast. So I want to start by asking you what the key challenges are for waste management and recycling in Canada. Have you got the same issues as us or are they different? I think we share some common issues around, you know, contamination and training people on which material goes in which bin. So I think that's kind of universal. We're probably not as far down the road with regulation. So we look to our friends in the UK and things like waste notes and uh, extended producer responsibility. So we're not as regulated over here, but we still have the same issues with contamination and the recycling markets have been pretty challenging in the last uh, three years. So we share those, but uh, also we share the monarchy as well in Canada. I don't know if you guys know that. We, we have the same queen. So that's another thing that the recycling industry has in common. <laughs> Excellent. We have the queen's head on bags of waste. I don't think so. And, <laughs> uh, and are you, do, you tell, do you feel like you're influenced sort of more by the Pacific, more by the Atlantic, more by the Americans, more by the Europeans? I mean, how, how do you, how, you know, where do you feel you've been influenced in terms of your sort of waste policy and legislation? Because obviously in the UK, we're massively influenced um, by Europe. When we joined the EU, we were sort of very much the, the dirty man of Europe. And now we've sort of managed to clean up our acts. But a lot of that has been driven by European legislation. I mean, where, where are you getting your sort of uh, context from? Or is it sort of uh, very much internally driven from, from Canada? Is, it a green, is Canada a green nation? Well, if you look at waste generation per capita, uh, Canada is number one in the in the worst possible way. I think we're either number one or two in terms of amount of waste generated per person. So we're not doing that well in that uh, metric. But I would say we're influenced by both. Canada is kind of a unique spot because we, in the waste industry anyway, we do this interesting thing where we would weigh a bin in kilograms, but then measure it in cubic yards. So we kind of have one foot in the imperial system of the states and one foot in the metric system of, of Europe. And if you look at Canada, we're, we're further ahead than the U.S. on things like EPR. In fact, the province that I'm based in, British Columbia, has a pretty progressive EPR program for North America. We are doing EPR for packaging now, which is, uh, is unique in North America and now starting to spread. So I would say, yeah, we have a little bit of that flavor. We look to Europe and try to emulate you know, some of the good things around EPR. But we're also influenced by the U.S. as a market force in terms of, you know, a lot of waste gets exported from Canada to the U.S. because our major population centers of Vancouver and Toronto are close to the U.S. border. And we actually send a lot of waste by rail across those borders. And uh, so that definitely does influence um, the recycling market. I mean, both of Canada and the U.S. were exporting, you know, almost everything until about three years ago. So now we are starting to look to the U.S. for export markets uh, for recycling as well. Yeah. And the um, extended producer responsibility then for packaging, how does that system work in Canada and maybe 
explain to our listeners what producer responsibility is if they've just tuned in and haven't heard of it before? Sure. So the the layman way I like to explain it is, you know, in, without producer responsibility, a producer produces, say, a, a cereal box or, a, you know, a six pack of beer and they send that packaging out into the market. And that packaging is the responsibility of the local council or the local town or whoever it is to then collect and dispose of responsibly. With EPR, you shift that responsibility to the producer. So the producer becomes responsible for collecting, disposing, recycling of that package. So they can either pay a fee, they can do it themselves. There's a lot of different variation, but essentially they are then responsible for properly disposing or recycling of that packaging. So the idea is to shift that responsibility from the you know local council or municipality to the producer, and hopefully they'll make more intelligent decisions around things like packaging material type, ease of recyclability, things like that. So in BC, we've had beverage container responsibility for a long time, almost you know two decades or more. And the shift recently was now to bring that into other forms of packaging, such as printed packaging, paper, flyers, things like that. When you say beverage containers, is that a deposit scheme on beverage containers? Is that what you're running out there? It is, yeah. So when you when you purchase a, a beverage container, you pay a, a small deposit. And when you bring that back, you get your deposit back. And on the other side, the producer for every container that they produce, they pay a small deposit. So there's kind of a small deposit on each side. And when they get that container back, basically it it pays for the system to kind of be a self-sustaining system. The redemption rates are actually quite high uh, because it's been around for so long. Um, I think you'll find most Canadians have this aversion to throwing a beverage container into the garbage because A, it's worth money and B, it's just been kind of ingrained into us for so long that beverage containers don't go in the garbage. And that's one thing when we go to the States where a lot of States don't have EPR for beverage containers. And, you know, you'll go and You'll watch the bartender throw the Budweiser bottle in the garbage and you're just kind of like shocked. But you realize that, yeah, if there's no EPR, there's really, really no motivation to recycle glass. It's just, it's not something that's going to happen. And is that, how are you, how are you, because this is really interesting because we're, we're in, in the sort of consultation period at the moment for a deposit return scheme in the UK and Scotland slightly further ahead. So the sort of the question we have at the moment is that we've got lots of beverage containers going into the curbside collection, but then we're going to have this new DRS deposit return scheme introduced and we're sort of going to be cannibalizing we might get an increase in recycling but we're going to be cannibalizing what's happening in the in the curbside and then also the sort of the some of the logic is that we need to put in sort of reverse vending machines like the ones that Tomra build you know and that's sort of like 50,000 euros each with you know a relatively small footprint and you have to go to the supermarket and a lot of people now don't even go to the supermarket because they get online deliveries so how in Canada are people taking, how are they getting their containers, their beverage containers back to get the deposit back? This is going to seem like a really stupid question for someone who's been here for 20 years, but <laughs> we, we don't know what's going to, we don't know how it's going to work. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So a lot of people would put their container deposit containers into their curbside pickup. And what would happen is that the MRF, those would be separated out as essentially another stream. So even though they're made of aluminum or they're made of plastic, they will pull them out and then essentially the municipality will return those back to the producer and get their you know five cents or 10 cents per container. So it can be a good revenue generator. Um, and the good thing is it's not at the whim of the recycling market. So if the recycling markets go up and down, the EPR price is set, right? So they know that if they collect X amount of containers from year to year, they can kind of bank on that, that revenue. Then there's, you know, public drop-off where you can go to depots. Uh, reverse vending machines are not super common in uh, in North America. They're much more common in Europe. I don't know why uh, they haven't taken off here, but mostly the, we have these kind of centralized depots that have now expanded to not only be, you know, for beverage containers, but they're kind of these EPR 
product drop off. So you can go there and drop off paint and light bulbs and e-waste and kind of anything that's covered by this EPR program, which is expanding every year. And so that seems to work quite well. Um, and in, in BC, especially where we're based, they're quite progressive. They, you know, they have new systems coming out, uh, this thing called Express Bag, which is kind of like ballet drop-off. You just roll up with your bag, you print off a QR code, and then they sort it for you and automatically deposit it into your account. So they're they're fairly innovative. And across the country, there's you know, different levels of sophistication. But the redemption rate is quite high, you know, 80% plus in most, uh, in most jurisdictions. So however those get back, it seems to be working. There's also a huge informal recycling system. Um, we have this thing called bottle drives. You know, if you're fundraising for your local school group or something like that, bottles are, you know, bottles and cans are kind of seen as a commodity as well as a lot of, you know, scavenging and informal collectors. You know, if you go to any city, you'll see people pushing shopping carts full of bottles down the, down the street because, you know, there's value assigned to them. So I think the thing to think of is if there's value associated, then the market forces kind of take over at a certain point, right? And the market figures out how to get those containers back to the redemption centers, however it may be, right? And so you, you, you're going to see with those sort of redemption rates, you're going to see very few beverage containers with the deposit on them in, in your commercial waste stream. Yeah. So for large commercial generators, so for example, we do some very large hotels, you know, 500 rooms plus, I mean, they're refund checks, so to speak, even though it's not really a refund because they paid the deposit when they, when they paid it, but you know, it can be thousands of dollars a month. And so it does start to add up and it does, you know, encourage them to separate those out as in a separate stream and make sure that they're clean and relatively decontaminated for processing. So I would say like, if someone's saying, does EPR work on beverage containers? For sure. I think you can look to Canada and even Australia has recently implemented one. We just had uh, Martin Collings on the podcast, our podcast a little while ago, and he's you know got a unique solution to help public uh, recycling of these containers because they have a barcode It scans the barcode. And if it's permitted, then it opens the door and lets them in. So it'll work. There, There is a lot of political maneuvering and the beverage companies are not typically in, in favor. Yeah. So, you know, there's some usually some political lobbying you've got to get through. But uh, if you look at the redemption rates, they definitely do work. And probably one of the interesting ones in the States is California, which has a, a beverage container deposit system. And one of their biggest challenges is people bringing containers in from outside of California. And so routinely, if you look at them, they actually pay out more in deposits than they charge because people are importing containers from outside the state. So that's proof that it works, right? You're going to motivate people to load up trucks and drive across the state line. It's going to work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big issue here is that they're going for a flat rate deposit. So whether it's a two litre plastic bottle of cider or a flat pack of 20 cans, the deposit rate is going to be the same per unit, whether it's a 330 mil can or bottle versus a two litre plastic bottle. They're going to go for a flat rate across all materials and all and all beverage sizes which seems well the can guys have got very worried about it because cans tend to be sold in small formats like 330 mils so they're very worried that it's going to be perceived as a much higher priced product versus if it's the same deposit for a two liter bottle of beer or cider yeah i mean there there is some uh, benefits of simplicity and that's one thing with a lot of the canadian systems is they're not you go into these return centers and they have this huge sign on the wall with like 28 different categories and you're supposed to sort and in, inevitably, after staring at the sign for 20 minutes and looking at the bottle you have in your hand and trying to figure out what category it's into, you do it wrong. And the guy at the counter looks at you like you're an idiot, rolls his <laughs> eyes and quickly sorts it for you. Uh, that's why I use the valet pickup, actually, is to avoid the shame of sorting things correctly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so simplicity, yeah, it'd be great if everything was the same. You are right, though. It may not be that fair for the producers because, you know, a can of 
beer is a lot less than say you know a big plastic bottle of juice or something like that so for sure and then what's the uh, recycling rate in canada overall if the you know you've got sort of high waste per capita you know number one or number two in the world but you've got some sort of certainly in, in british columbia you've got some sort of advanced systems of produce responsibility deposit return are you getting up there in the sort of high sort of mid mid 30s 40s recycling rate or still in the 20s if you so if you focus on the urban areas they are definitely getting into the you know over 50s sometimes 60 percent range the challenge we have in canada is it's a huge country and the urban areas are easier to service but the rural areas you know you've got some real logistical problems in terms of collecting material and then once you do collect it you're miles and miles and miles away from any kind of you know processing facility so the transportation costs and the logistical challenges typically can discourage um you know, kind of those programs from taking off. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, Canada as a whole, that's a good question. I actually don't know what Canada as a whole, it's kind of a, as you know, Bruce, there's kind of a quagmire of recycling stats, right? Residential versus commercial versus all those other things. Um, but that's a good number. I should probably know and get a bumper sticker that, that has that. I know recycle smart clients are, you know, roughly just over 50, 54%, I think was our last figure. So definitely I would say we attract probably a clientele that's a little more interested in recycling than the general uh, market as a whole, just because of you know who we are and what we do. But um, yeah, what's the UK's recycling rate? Mid forties, something like that. So um, not great, and we need to get to sixty-five percent in eight years' time. So there's a long way to go, a long, long way to go. But it's different from different local council areas. We are going to get onto recycle smart. We're going to ask one more question about Canada. So have you got a particularly difficult waste stream um, or a highly politicized waste stream that everybody's sort of worried about? I mean, we we sort of banned plastic straws quite early on after the sort of uh, David Attenborough films about blue oceans, which is a tiny proportion of the waste stream. It's only something like 14,000 tonnes per year. It's tiny, but, you know, a, a nuisance waste stream. And then there was another film um, by a famous chef, um, celebrity chef on coffee cup recycling. So usually the government consultation now has a whole section on coffee cup recycling, single-use coffee cup recycling, which has become a sort of a politicized type of waste stream. If I came to Canada, what would I embarrass myself around if I asked for a a particular type of waste or had a particular type of waste? (laughs) Uh, well, the plastic bag ban. So the federal government has now implemented a mandate to ban bags across the country. I'm not sure by what year, but it's in the next couple of years. And so I think plastic bags are probably you know enemy number one. And the reason they implemented the federal mandate was because a, lo- a bunch of local municipalities and councils tried to do it and then ended up in court with the plastic association who basically the courts ruled, well, you don't have the mandate as a local, you know, a local town to do this. So I think plastic bags are probably the biggest one. Um, the other hot potato is waste to energy, which in the UK is is much more common. We're just not really wrapping our heads around waste to energy. There's a handful of them in the country, but most people still see burning waste as a bad thing to do and would rather landfill it. And so I think that's that's probably one of those kind of, you know, we have more space. So landfilling is, I mean, in Canada, we could landfill for a long, long time. Is it a good thing to do? Is it is it the right thing to do? That's probably, you know, where it's more of a philosophical debate. 
Well, that debate's you know it's it's sort of started to rise again in the UK because some say we've got too many incinerators, some people say we're better off landfilling the waste and digging it up in the future. So we sort of thought we had that one resolved where it was a good option for residual waste, but now it seems to be something that's been raised up and quite quite rightly debated again. So right, Recycle Smart, you're you're a new business or relatively new business to the Canadian waste market, and I don't think your uh, background's in re- recycling either, Colin. So can you tell us what you're doing differently to the traditional waste companies, what Recycle Smart does, and, and how you got into the, the business of recycling waste management? For sure, yeah. So uh, I guess we're relatively new. We're, we're actually 13 years old this year, but I like to say we're a 13-year-old startup. So we're, we're still uh, trying to uh, figure out you know, the exact way to go to market and also innovating and creating new things. But you're right, yeah, it did not come from the, the waste industry. You never drove a waste truck, uh, didn't work in a MRF, didn't work for a waste hauler. So got into the waste recycling industry, kind of in a roundabout way. I was running an event business, got some quotes on some uh, roll-off bins or skips, as you guys call them. And the prices the prices I got were, you know, varied from, you know, $1,000 to 20000 and did some digging at that point into kind of the market of waste and recycling in Canada and how there wasn't any regulation. And there also wasn't a lot of standardization and businesses were paying hugely varying rates in terms of, you know, the same service, but they just either negotiated harder or were more educated. So really got into the business as a way of saving customers money, but very quickly, especially where we were located in Vancouver, a lot of companies said, great, saving money is is fun, but we also need help with our recycling program. And so that's really what what kind of turned the business into being more of a two-pronged, you know, sustainability and saving money. Everyone wants to reduce costs and obviously, you know, get a good deal on waste services, but they also need help on organic diversion programs, reporting, all that kind of thing. And then we quite quickly started to use technology to make our job more efficient because a lot of what we do is what we call right-sizing or efficiency. And the only way we could do that prior to IoT sensors was manually looking in, in bins. So, you know, my 20s and 30s, I spent a lot of Friday nights driving around looking in dumpsters and wasn't great for my social life, but it was a good way to, in, you know, increase efficiency of clients. But eventually when you get to thousands of bins, you, you realize this isn't, this isn't sustainable. So that's when we start to look at IoT sensors as a way to scale more effectively. And for the listeners, IoT uh, sensors, what are they? How do they work? <laughs> right. The jargon gets us. So we call it the Internet of Things. But basically, it's a it's a connected device in a waste recycling container that measures fill level. And some of the new devices actually have cameras that take photos of, of container contents. And they're connected to the mobile phone network. So basically, it's like a smartphone in your bin that takes a photo and measures the fill level and then transmits it back to the cloud. And so you can log in at any time and see last time the bin was collected, how full it was, what's in it. And then you use that data to make decisions around when should I pick that bin up? And should I maybe, you know, refine the the education program on that bin? Because maybe I'm seeing a lot of stuff that shouldn't be in the recycling bin. So I know I need to go to, you know, talk to the guys at Bruce's coffee shop and say, you know, stop throwing garbage in the organics bin or stop putting your coffee cups in the recycling bin. And you can get a good enough image, can you, of these sensors to make decisions, informed decisions about what's going in the bin? Yeah, so our IoT journey has kind of evolved over the years as we got more experience. The the camera-based sensors definitely work best in a dry recycling bin uh, or what we call a non-juicy garbage bin. Uh, and that way they stay clean longer. If you're going into very dirty bins, then using an ultrasonic sensor, which just measures fill level but doesn't give you an image, is a better choice. Because, yeah, if the camera gets dirty, then it can't see anymore. Um, we do spend quite a bit of money each uh, month paying people to clean lenses as well so there's some maintenance there as well where you just need to go out and give it a wipe down once in a while and then it's good to go 
And then with the ultrasound, we've had a bit of experience with this, is that you can get sort of a piece of cardboard bridged across the sort of the, the bin. How do you overcome that? Is there a way now? Are they, are they getting the technology where they can sort of kind of look through sort of thinner items to see if the bin's really full? Yeah, so the first generation of ultrasonic sensors, you're right, they were easily fooled because it was a single ultrasonic. And if there was happened to be a cardboard box sticking up at the wrong angle, it, it would think that it was full. But the next generation you're seeing coming out now is is smarter. So you have devices with multiple ultrasonics. So they might have three pointing in different directions. And then it's smart enough to say, oh, well, I'm full on one, but I'm empty on the other. There must be a box. And it kind of averages out the fill level. And then with the, the next generation that we're just starting to see now is LiDAR. So this is basically like a very low energy radar that that can penetrate things like cardboard and, and be a little bit smarter about what's in the bin. And that's being driven, you know, self-driving cars are really driving the cost of that technology down. So like anything, the first generation, you know, you kind of have the promise of the technology and and then it gets better as, as uh, you know, it matures and you get different approaches into the engineering side. And so that sort of gives you the opportunity to optimize the sort of pickups with the customer on the, as you said, the right sizing of the services. How are you doing on weights? Because the sort of the UK market has moved quite a long way, particularly in the commercial sector, to weighing bins. So it's weighed as it's as as it's picked up multiple times to give a sort of weight per container. Is that something that's happening in the Canadian market or other IoT devices that can now weigh? Could you get like smart bins that weigh themselves? <laughs> We've seen some pro- prototypes and projects around weighing IoT bins, but I haven't seen one successfully yet. It's not nearly as common in uh, in Canada or even in North America to weigh to weigh bins. So really right now we're kind of bridging the gap between absolutely no data on how full your bin is to eventually where they get to the point where they'd be weighing them. So it's kind of like right now you have no idea how much is in your bin or how much it weighs, at least with a sensor, you know how full it is. And then you can do some extrapolation around the material type and come up with an estimated weight. Um, but yeah, weight's not as common. Um, a lot of haulers use them on certain vehicles to kind of do profitability checks or maybe, you know, look for overweight bins. But in terms of billing people by weight, especially in the in the commercial market, it's not that common. Do you then use the bin sensors to adjust a schedule of collections? So if someone's, you know, you win a contract, they've got five times a week, and then you say, actually, we can take it down to three times a week. Or are you using it as a call off? So when the, when the bin sensor says it's full, then you send a, a haulier to empty it. Yeah, so mostly it's historical looking back. The industry is not quite ready to go full on demand. You know, the Uber of waste idea, which was kind of popularized a couple of years ago, we're just not quite there yet. Um, so really what we do is we look at the data from the past month or two months, and then we we use that data to improve the optimization going forward. So if we're always showing up at Bruce's coffee shop on Monday and the bin's 20% full, and on Wednesday, it's 30% full. On Friday, it's 60. Then we know that we can probably knock a pickup off a week. And then we can look at the waste generation per day and make a you know, kind of an informed decision around which day the, the truck should actually show up. So will it ever get to the Uber of waste? Maybe, maybe in some markets too, like where it's harder to service. But if you're in a dense area like London or New York, you, once your truck is down in the city core, you might as well do your rounds and, and pick up everything that's there. You don't want to be going back down a few hours later because, you know, the bin got full. 
So there's, I think, a place for the Uber of waste. It's just probably not going to be everywhere. I thought that US company Rubicon was the Uber. They call themselves the Uber of waste, or somebody <laughs> did. I thought we already had the Uber of waste. Are, they, are those guys operating in Canada now? Yeah, Rubicon's an interesting company. I mean, they did popularize this kind of Uber of waste uh, concept, and everyone kind of scratched their heads and thought, well, this isn't really how the industry runs in North America, so how are they going to do it? And then it seems like they're now more into the smart cities space, uh, helping cities optimize collection and collect data as the garbage trucks drive around town. So I think they may have also run into the fact that, you know, the Uber of waste is is maybe a nice catchword, but not that realistic. So we'll see where the industry goes in the future. But it is hard, isn't it? Because it's sort of by the very nature of being waste, it's not really measured. And then sort of clients want it measured, but then it's quite hard when it's all been put in the same uh, in the same dumpster or wheelie bin or, or skip. And then your bin tracker concept is that the IoT or is that something that audits the material in the in the way in the bin as well? What's bin tracker? So bin tracker is new for us. It's actually an interesting concept that we tried to cobble together a, a couple of years ago, but um, now an Australian uh, firm has actually done it in a much more polished way. So we're basically, you know, bringing that to the Canadian market. Bin tracker is really designed around multi-tenant buildings. Let's say you have an office building with twenty different tenants, and you want to know, you know, who's generating how much waste in this office tower. Maybe you've got Apple on the top three floors, and then you've got, you know, another company, and you've got. Dell computers and you want to know, okay, who generates more waste and what type of waste. And so really it's about quantifying how much waste from which tenant uh, is being generated in any given day or month. And it's really actually a simple system. It's basically, you're just tagging the bins when you collect them from the tenant spaces. And then when you get down to the disposal area, the loading dock, you just weigh it, you scan it and you allocate that, that material to the correct tenant and that's instantly uploaded. So it just gives you a window into, you know, who's producing what in a building because different tenants can, you, you've probably seen this, Bruce, you have a restaurant tenant and they occupy, you know, 5,000 square feet. Well, they would generate exponentially more waste than say an office, right? And so how do we bill appropriately? How do we manage the services appropriately? And it just gives you better data. It also automates, you know, a lot of these buildings are trying to qualify for things like BOMAVEST or LEED or some kind of certification scheme. And so Instead of them having to go through an expensive assessment process, they basically have that data and they can just put it into their application and press send. And then the person who does it, the labor, are you providing the labor or is that typically a cleaner or a janitor that's on site that you train up? Exactly. It's, it's You're typically using their existing staff and just showing them how to do it. And it's just a smartphone app that they basically install on their phone and, and they get a bunch of QR coded decals. And they just, when they go to, you know, they go to the bin at the Apple uh, kitchen, they just put the sticker on and they go into the phone and say, this is the bag from the Apple kitchen. And then uh, they tag it when they get down to the scale and then it gets uploaded into the cloud. And does that give then, so the bin, so then does that feed in the sort of the, the, the weight and the data and the, and the bin type into your system, EPR system for sending out invoices to customers? Is that sort of how that works? So with Bin Tracker, we feed the data into their sustainability reports. Not too many of our customers have yet got to the billing, uh, you know, bill by weight scenario yet. So they may use it when a lease when a lease comes up. They may they may use it to adjust the overall lease cost because typically waste is kind of buried in the in the operating costs. But yeah, typically they would use it to feed it into their sustainability reports, which they would then use. Yeah. And how are you how are you reporting recycling achievements and what's the sort of pitfalls of that? How are customers receiving it because you know we we have a lot of the time customers i mean we do a lot around of reporting and recycling but they want 
you know, they're used to getting an electricity meter reading and it tells them exactly how much electricity they've used. And then you always have a level of approximation with recycling achievement reports. So you, are you cracking that industry problem with bin tracker or another means? I think the biggest issue that we have with uh, sustainability reporting, so reporting on things like diversion rates is data quality. And because we're operating, you know, across, you know, a country with hundreds of vendors, the data quality can be very different. You could potentially have a vendor that that weighs their containers, and then you have another vendor that doesn't weigh them at all. And so the quality of data you're getting from those two vendors is, is quite different. And so if you're to benchmark two buildings, well, you know, how do you benchmark someone that has, you know, scale calibrated weights with someone that's like, I don't know, the bin's that big, it gets picked up twice a week, and they have no idea what's in it. So sensors do help because, as we said before, sensors do give you at least the volume, but you get a, a huge variation. So I think the data, the data quality then affects the usability of the data, right? So if, if one facility says, oh, we have 50% diversion rate, and the other building says, well, ours is only 40, and then you look in and you discover the 50% guys are using all estimated weights, it's like, well, you really don't know what's happening here, right? You're just making a wild guess based on your service schedule and your and the size of your container. You you need to put sensors in and weigh it before you'd really be able to say we have a 50% diversion rate. And are you doing sort of calibration audits where you might go to a site if there isn't a weighing and weigh the bins and say this this is a you know this customer's got a really wasteful restaurant, therefore they've got a higher higher average weight bins, even though it's the same cubic yard than a, than another one of their sites? Yeah, waste auditing. I don't know if it's a big thing in the UK, but waste auditing is, in some jurisdictions in Canada, it's mandated, and then often it's mandated for these certification schemes like LEED or BOMA Best. I think the, the value with waste audits is more the really detailed contextual information about what's in the waste you're producing and what could you do to divert it because it's only a, typically it's only a 24-hour snapshot and so but you know by tearing open bags and looking at the actual waste composition you can discover oh like you said the restaurant produces a lot of food waste maybe we should implement an organic diversion program that would help or maybe you discover that they're throwing all, you know all the paper in the garbage because the guys on the fourth floor don't have a paper recycling bin and it's an easy fix you just get them one and that'll solve the problem and then the data that you do have that comes back from the your suppliers the 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 hauliers the the partners is that coming in because you mentioned standardization early on have you standardized their sort of service specifications and then if they is that feeding into an api or are they sending you know cbs files i mean how how, is that is that a minefield getting that data sort of uh into a into a intelligible format i mean it definitely is with some of our uk uh, suppliers yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing challenge for the major companies. So the, you know, the, the top 10 vendors that we have, which are, you know, large companies with IT departments that, that can actually support, you know, API or export, it's starting to come. Definitely, it's a big focus for us in the next couple of years is to work on those connections and make sure that we automate them as much as we can. But we deal with, you know, 800 plus vendors across the country. Uh, some of them are still sending us handwritten invoices. So, I mean, getting those vendors to an API is probably going to be, <laughs> Bruce and I might be dead by then by the time it happens. So, so yeah, there's a huge variety. You know, our goal is to get to the 60, 70% range, and then likely the last 10 or 15 might be very difficult because of the, just, you know, the technological maturity of those vendors. For sure. And is there a, is there a part of Canada that's uh, less well-developed in terms of its sort of maturity of the of the waste industry, or is it sort of <laughs> spread all over? This is where I get in trouble with our provincial counterparts. <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, most of the provinces have made pretty good strides. It's actually interesting. Some of the smaller ones on the East Coast, which is what we call the maritime provinces, 
are actually quite far ahead compared to the major, uh, you know, so this would be like going out to a small town and finding out they're much further ahead than, than say, you know, London. And I think part of the reason is it's easier for them. They're more nimble. And the other reason I think is that a lot of them did have some landfill issues. You know, the local landfill got to the end of life and they sat down and said, you know, to build another landfill is going to be a very politically contentious because no one wants one in their backyard and be very expensive. And so they were kind of forced to look at the recycling option and say, maybe this is a way that we you know, don't have to open a new landfill and, and pay the huge capital cost to operate it. But I would say for the most part, you know, the major cities are doing a better job than the rural cities. I just moved from Vancouver to a smaller city. And this is a city of, you know, a couple hundred thousand people and they don't have uh, curbside organics, which is something that's been in the in most of the major centers for a long time. And it's just weird. It feels wrong if you scrape your food scraps into your garbage bin and I still kind of shudder every time I do it. But they just don't have the infrastructure and it's, you know, there's no regulation forcing them to do it yet. So they'll wait until either there's a regulation or, you know, maybe economics kick in and make it you know cheaper to compost than put it in the landfill. And is the, are the collections done in a, in, a, in a town by the council? Is it like a direct service where the councils operate and run the refuge collection service? Or, or have, they sub, have they sort of given or tendered out the contract to a private collector who runs it? Or is it sort of like in some states in the US where it's totally deregulated and you could have five different private companies going down the, down the road? Yeah, for the most part in the major centres, it's, it's controlled by the, uh, the municipality or the, the town or the city. I would say we've seen a trend towards privatization in the last decade. So a lot of cities used to have, you know, the city garbage truck with the city employee running it. And a lot of that has now been, even though it's controlled by the city, they hire a, sub, a private subcontractor actually to, to do the collection. There's often a mishmash, you know, some parts of the system are done by city employees and some are done by private sector. But I would say the private sector providing the services is, is becoming more and more common. And I think you'll see that going forward is that most cities are going to get out of the uh, the business of running trucks and drivers and just subcontract it out to third parties. We don't really have communal collection as much as in the UK. So it's almost all single family uh, or residential collection where it's at your point of residence and um, private collectors in some rural markets, again, where there's no real kind of regional government, then you either have to self-haul, like put in the back of your vehicle and take it to the local landfill, or there are you know private haulers that will pick it up for you. And is that a market that Recycle Smart might get into, running a municipality contract or operating sort of in the domestic field? We've typically stayed away from it. We find councils and towns very slow moving and we are fast and impatient. Um, so we typically stay away from those contracts. I think in the future, though, we, we may start uh, using our expertise in IoT because we have a lot of implementation on the ground experience with IoT. And so as municipalities get more interested in that space, helping municipalities to implement IoT into their waste and recycling collection programs is something that uh, we're definitely exploring. We do get a lot of questions from municipalities about it because they learn that there's these devices out there and they want to know more about, you know, how do they work and where do they work and kind of things like that. So I think there is maybe an opportunity there to, you know, be a technology partner for them. In terms of actually doing services in the residential market, not really. I don't know about you, Bruce, but it kind of gives you the willies to have that many customers that can complain. So, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an element of that. And has the price point or will the price point of the sort of bin sensors, IAT sensors get to the point where you could sort of stick one in your kitchen bin and then sort of, you know, have an app that tells you whether you're, you know, roughly how much you're recycling in the in the household? Is it is it or are they just too expensive for that sort of low level application? No, you're seeing the uh, the cost of sensors and connectivity, you know, in the last five years, it's gone down exponentially and it's continuing to go down. 
And we're now seeing on, you know, some of the very basic kind of vibration asset trackers. I mean, it can be as low as $100 a year uh, for the hardware and the service. So the price point is definitely dropping. And I think, you know, as the price point drops, you'll see penetration into kind of new areas of the IoT waste space that, uh, you know, wouldn't have been uh, viable before just due to the cost. I think the challenge in the um, IoT of, of garbage space is figuring out kind of where you can drive the most value within, you know, the, within the kind of operational chain. So you've got trucks, you've got people that are collecting the waste in buildings, you've got parks, you've got all. So kind of where does this technology provide the most value? And I think the industry is still trying to kind of figure that out in terms of, you know, well, we have all these sensors and all this data where can it provide the most data or the, the most value? We've got lots of data. How can we use it? For example, a lot of people say, oh, well, you should put these on every residential you know, dumpster in town. And then the garbage truck will just go around and pick up the full containers. But if you start to do some studying on root density, you realize that there's not a lot of efficiency to be gained if I pick up your bin and then I skip your neighbors and then I pick up the next person. And then I got to come back the next day because your neighbor, you know, your neighbor's bin's full. So there's places where the where this can drive value and there's places where it doesn't really add a lot of value. Yeah, for sure. And are you getting any access to your hauliers truck data? Because nearly all trucks now have got telemetry on them. Are you is are they opening that up so you can see on your service platform where your haulier trucks are? Um, or have you stuck maybe you haven't told them, have you stuck trackers <laughs> on their vehicles seeing <laughs> where they are? Yeah, we haven't uh, clandestinely put trackers on their trucks yet. Um, we don't get a lot of information back from the hauliers. And, and we're in kind of an interesting scenario where our haulers are also our competition. So the best way to explain it would be, I don't know what the big UK travel website would be, but here in North America, we have Expedia or Travelocity or, or those things. And so if you think of it that way, we we compete with our vendors to get clients and then we turn around and get them to pick up our clients bins, which often used to be their clients. And so it's this kind of interesting relationship where, you know, they, they want your business because they want business and, and you bring a lot of volume. But on the other hand, they don't really want to completely op- you know, open up the kimono and show everything about their operations because you're going to be bidding against them on contracts and, and they want to be competitive. So yeah, in an ideal world, yes, for sure. I would know where all the trucks are and when, someone called and said, where's my pickup? I could log in and say, oh, I can see that, you know, Bruce's truck is five blocks away. He'll be there in half an hour. But yeah, it's where we sit in that chain doesn't quite work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But it sounds like you get plenty of the holies working with you anyway. And that sort of is, a, is a, there isn't there isn't sort of a shortage of businesses to sub the work out to. No, we have about 800 vendors and, uh, you know, we're constantly onboarding new vendors and, and bringing on new vendors to uh, to do services. So I think we're known as being fair in the industry. We pay our bills on time. We're, we're not, you know, completely uh, crazy to deal with. We try to operate ethically in terms of, you know, respecting kind of the boundaries of contracts and contractual obligations. So I think they just, it's RecycleSmart's another customer. We may be a low margin customer because we negotiate hard, but we're fairly easy to deal with and, you know, we pay our bills on time. And I think we understand the industry too, so that we know what's possible and what isn't, and we're not going to ask for something that's completely ridiculous. So that's super interesting. So looking looking to the next sort of uh, year or two ahead, without without mentioning the dreaded boring subject of COVID, <laughs> what's coming up in the next year or two that you're most excited about, and what should we when we get you back on on the podcast in eight, twelve or eighteen months time? What's the what's the big new thing that Recycle Smart are going to be working on? For sure. So uh, we are packaging up our IoT experience and a kind of our IoT software expertise into a new brand called Pello. And uh, so 
P-E-L-L-O is launching in the fall and we'll be basically using this platform to go out to new markets like we talked about municipalities, uh, some private sector areas that we don't touch and essentially try to spread the good word of what IoT can do in terms of efficiency for waste and recycling and use this you know, eight plus years of experience in the field to help other companies get value from their IoT devices in the waste and recycling space. Brilliant. Sounds good. Excellent. And is that going to be a big push internationally on that once you're sort of IoT expert? Uh, I think we'll stay in North America. We'll probably venture over the border into the US. But for right now, there's lots of market over here. Uh, we really understand the North American market and the European and UK market. It is similar in a lot of ways, but it's also quite different. So, I mean, obviously you guys drive on the other side of the road, which is something <laughs> that we have to wrap our head around. But yeah, it's a, it's a big market on this side. Yeah. Uh, unless someone in the UK really came forward with a you know compelling valuation for us to come over there, I think we will stay in North America. So for sure, sounds sounds sensible. You've got plenty of waste, Colin. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing about your business, Recycle Smart, and the Canadian waste and recycling market. Thanks for being my guest and wasted. It's been an absolute pleasure. Make sure you subscribe to Wasted and leave your five-star review.